0: This is Dave Melcher with Entrepreneurs, The Playbook, and I got a new playbook for you, Mark Morgenstern. He is the CEO of Blue Mesa Partners. He's an expert of value, and I wanted to have him on The Playbook because there has been a shift in the paradigm of value in negotiation, and I've been blessed now to have Mark. Welcome to The Playbook.
1: Well, thank you so
0: much. Look forward to talking with you and your audience. Absolutely. Well, you know, I come from a line of great negotiators. I ran uh, the most notable sports agency in the world uh, with Lee Steinberg, sports and entertainment, and Lee wrote a book about negotiation. And a lot of people's perception of negotiation is a scarce one. It's one of a zero sum game with winners and losers in comparison. And it's one in which there's trades and negotiation within the context of taking value not adding value, and so I wanted to start with just your general perception of abundance. Do you think that negotiation can be a, a platform for abundant behavior, or is it definitely a competition, a trade? Is it scarce in its basic nature?
1: So <clears throat> I'll start by being uncooperative and say I never answer binary questions because I don't believe in the concept of binary nice will lead into what I think about negotiating (laughs) beautiful so I tend to think oops sorry I missed something there I I tend to think of a couple of basic things when I'm negotiating you know it starts always with who is the counterparty always it can't start with me um I have to figure out who they are and what they need and what they want and what their vocabulary is And what's being conveyed to me when they say certain things to make sure I hear it correctly. That's sort of at the human level, because one of my maxims is that the epicenter of every deal are people, not spreadsheets. (laughs) I I think you kind of have to start with that one, right? Beautiful. Um, The second thing is, part of the reason why the Grateful Dead is both a metaphor and it is literal in terms of having influenced me, is the same song is not always the same song right? They could play Bertha one night for three minutes and it'll be 33 minutes the next night. And what I would tell you is it wasn't that one of those was better and the other was worse. It's that they were different. And that's how I think about deals. So if you sort of thought that in an average deal, and I've never done this scientifically, I'm just sort of making this up as I'm going along, but an average agreement has 50 or 60 pages. And to me, pretty much every word has an economic impact. It doesn't it's not identified as economic, but it has an economic impact. So if you think of it that maybe there are 50 variables within that document, within that deal, then think of them as Lego pieces. If you had 50 Lego pieces, how many deals could you make? You could interlock Lego piece 2 and 12 and 86, and it might be a great deal, and 12, 19, and 47, and whatever, and different deal. And so you have to look at deals from my perspective as a mosaic. When you get all done and you add up all the pieces and you look at where it affects everybody, do you wanna do the deal or don't you wanna do the deal? And usually there are a couple of ones that are absolutely spectacular. I mean, you and I would say, boom, we don't need to think about it, let's do it. And there's some that we look and say, yeah, I'm still pretty okay with this. I lost a little here, I gained a little here, this has this, you know. Mm -hmm. And then there are a bunch that you look at and say, you know, by the time we're all done, I don't want to do this deal and so that's sort of a metaphor of the jam band you know playing a song sometimes the magic works sometimes the magic doesn't so lots of deals can be done they're different deals i don't think anyone won or lost and i don't think it's a zero-sum game it is a mosaic and kenny rogers by the way was correct when he said you got to know when to hold them and when you got to know when to fold them so if you're sitting at a table and you're negotiating you should always be prepared to say, No, this just doesn't work for me. I really enjoyed it, appreciate the effort. Doesn't work.
0: See you another yeah. day. It's interesting because I think that two things need to go into negotiation preparation, and a lot of people don't think about them. And one is timing and risk tolerance. Uh, I don't think a lot of people go into negotiation thinking about their own timing and risk tolerance. And then two, perceived value, yes, bottom line, no. I think as you had stated, that it's okay to fold them, but most people don't know their bottom line, so they don't know when to fold them. Now, you've written you know, what I believe to be a thought, really leading book of negotiation, because you talk about the soul of a deal. And in the context of the maxims in which you discussed in your book, uh, which came out November 1st, um, there very rarely is people applying a soul to a deal. It's usually a quantitative analysis of some sort of negotiation. Why did you choose to talk about a soul in a deal uh, in the context of your new book? Well, Let me start with the title itself
1: and go back to my fundamental premise that I learned how to do what I do by selling encyclopedias door to door and following the Grateful Dead. If you've ever had the pleasure of selling encyclopedias door to door in a hot summertime, you go house to house to house to house to house, and you are on your shoes and you're wearing them out. And it's the soul, right? It's the soul of your feet, S O L E, soul. If you look at the dead and what made, made them uh, so remarkable, you know, Garcia was always described as the most soulful guitarist in the world. They played lots of soul songs. And they also start with people are not only entitled to be different, they should be different. And we need to figure out who they are and interact with them. And it's an extraordinarily positive way of approaching any negotiation. And again, at a super high level, I would just say that people negotiate. The reason I reject the binary is it makes me think about the person who isn't me as the enemy. It's a military metaphor. I don't want to negotiate with a, a, an enemy. I want to negotiate with a counterparty. We're mutually trying to get to the same place. We're trying to find a deal. And along the way, the reason the soul, because you 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 learn that um, people's words mean something and a variable that you don't think is that important is really, really, really important to them. and And because it's people-centric, and you are trying to empathize with other human beings and communicate with them, you know, if you're not talking to their soul, you're just talking to their brain, you're not gonna succeed. And the way you sell anything is you, you know, you sort of lead with emotion and you close with analysis. And too many negotiators start with, I'm leading with logic and analysis, and I don't care about the emotion. Well, if you don't get emotional buy-in from your counterparty, it's not gonna close. And by the way, along the way, you don't do deals aren't like selling encyclopedia. You know, you're not interacting for an hour. You're interacting for days and days and months and months sometimes. So you want that other human being to value you as a human being. You want them to want to pick up the phone when you call. You want them to have an emotional goodwill towards you. So by the way, if you say something stupid, they say, you know, Mark isn't usually that stupid. I'm going to let that one go and just ask him about it later. But if you haven't gone to their soul, then that's really going to ruffle everybody. And maybe you kerfuffle the deal. And why would you do that?
0: Brilliant. And I always say people buy on emotion for logical reasons. But one of the biggest things that stops deals is the capability of the communication, meaning in the soul of business or the soul of negotiation, we still need to articulate a quantitative value. Uh, hopefully to exceed what we're asking for. And you have so many tangible takeaways in your book, um, maxims that you have, um, and you do it in a storytelling fashion. And I always say that people learn through stories, life's about these lessons, but uh, the easiest way to articulate value is through stories. How important is it that we practice uh, our storytelling and the ability to articulate quantitative value in the process, in the soul of a deal? Well, in some
1: ways it's everything because to me, the whole world is stories, just like the whole world is music and songs. And if you ask anybody a song that they heard when they were nine years old on the radio or their CD or whatever modality, they know every word of that song. You know, people passed down, you know, the Aeneid and, and the great Greek plays for thousands of years orally. So people respond to stories. And if you're going to create a story, which is the beginning to me of a sale, you again, you've got to start with not what do I want to sell, but what do they want to buy? Because it's a story for this particular audience. And part of the reason that the encyclopedia selling is so important is if you were going to try the same approach on house one, two, and three, and you didn't vary it, you were not going to be successful. House one had house one's problems and issues and what they were cooking and what they valued. And what you'd find is, you know, I couldn't, I could literally never change the physical shape of an encyclopedia. I mean, it's this wide and it's this heavy and it is what it is. But if you'd listen to people and talk to them and hear their story first, right? What's your life story? I would say, and they would tell me. And they would express a regret that they dropped out of high school. So the encyclopedia was an education. They would feel badly that their neighbor had a newer car, but they could get encyclopedia set, and then they'd have something their neighbor didn't have. There were a myriad of reasons of what that encyclopedia represented to them. So you start not with the story you want to tell, but the story someone else wants to hear. And then you're trying to put a human face on everything. and. I like storytelling because it lets me create a context and a narrative. And if I'm trying to lay it out, so if you think about it as a play, you know, we're gonna be talking many, many times. I wanna come back to, hey, remember when I said the seller's mantra is certainty and confidentiality? Do you remember I said that on day one? Well, this will now be the 18th time I've said it. So I hope you're beginning to appreciate that what I meant by those words were we want certainty and we want confidentiality. And by repetition, replicability, songs and words that maybe didn't mean so much the first time, take on greater and greater meaning over time. And we've all experienced, I'm assuming you have too, you you heard something when you were a kid, your parents said it to you. It didn't make any sense to you. 22 years later, you went, oh, that's what they were talking about. Now I get it. And so over time, if your message is consistent, if it's a narrative, if it's a story, it's populated with people and, and what they want to say, the cumulative impact is much greater
0: than any one individual impact. And that's why it's storytelling. Everything to you has a cornerstone of human nature, and it's a people-focused uh, soul uh, that you look at. and. In- You know, for me, my mom, an educator, six kids, five boys and a girl that she raised by herself, stressed history. She stressed studying history because she always said, study history and you'll learn human nature and human nature never changes. And I see that cornerstone in, in your writing as well. And then it seems as if you extract from the unchanging human emotional condition, nature that we have, some tactical aspects of negotiation, uh, from your understanding of human nature, what are some of the tactical aspects of negotiation? Uh, if I have assumed correctly, that are derived from uh, this, you know, unfluctuating human nature that we have.
1: You may think that what I'm saying is an exaggeration, but it, but it isn't. I'm telling you, this is literal whether I'm at a dinner party or lunch, or I'm meeting new people in a conference room, or I'm speaking someplace, I'm at a negotiating table. Before I do anything, I say, listen, please humor me. I'd like you to tell me your life story. This isn't a test. There's no right or wrong. Um, It's also not an interrogation. You can put in what you want, leave out what you want, but I need to understand who you are so I can hear you better. So please tell me your life story very frequently the person starts with, well, I'm a vice president of operations of such and such. I say, hey, really, I could have read that on your resume. Here's what I (laughs) want to know. You know, you were a kid. You had siblings or you didn't. You had two parents or you didn't. You loved school or you didn't. You wanted to be a cowgirl. I want to know who you are and sort of how you made decisions. And I will say there's both a, you know, my kids sometimes say this as Machiavellian, which I find pretty painful because I don't see it that way, but I do want to learn who they are, but mostly, or on top of that, I want to understand how do they make decisions? So if you say to somebody, you know, you're skipping from your 10 to your 30, whoa, 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 you did or didn't go to college. Okay, I did go to college. Great. Where did you go? How did you choose it? And then someone will talk you through their decision-making process, and then they skip. I'm 30. No, no, no. You started working, You did. what did you do? I did such and such. Why did you do it? What was your decision-making process? So there are a couple of constants to me. If the person I'm talking to is a guy, and between the ages of 16 and 25, they tell me any, if their answer doesn't start with, well, there was this girl, then I do not believe their story, and I tell them to start over again. Because it's always, there was this girl. I mean, I just, I know that. Sometimes it is that guy, but it, either way, it's, it's a counterparty. So if you hear their decision-making process, you hear, well, are they a lone wolf? Do they make decisions impulsively? Did they, did they involve five people? Did they explore 16 alternatives? What is their thought process and decision-making matrix? And if I start with that, what they've put in their life story and how they think, well, this negotiation is gonna be a lot easier
0: don't you think i mean seriously right absolutely getting someone to let you know where they're at today and then what they like and what they don't like attach that emotion to it now there are consequences in deal making and great deal makers they know that they and they live with those consequences uh as you teach deal making and written the soul of deal making uh, you know, what are the consequences that we should take into consideration as a great deal maker?
1: Well, if it's okay with you, I'm going to warble for 30 seconds on the analytical construct, which I think people are ignoring in the book. Yeah. So did you look at the deal circle? I did. I did. I would tell you that very few people ever think about two things, a critical path from here to a closing. That's a big mistake. And the deal circle, and why, why the deal circle? Well, there are two different aspects of the deal circle. You know, one is that um, in the most, most inner circle, if, it, if it's an M&A deal, not a venture deal, there's a buyer and a seller, and the buyer knows who the seller is, and the seller knows who the buyer is, and they're having some direct communications, and um, they're thinking about how this person is reacting. The next circle, which is not so obvious, is there's also a lawyer, an accountant, and a banker, an investment banker, and all of those people who may or may not be present are having an influence on the actual decision maker. So you need to be figuring out who they are, how do they think, how do you persuade them as well? And then you go one more circle farther out. You've got employees, you have customers, you have all kinds of third parties, and way, way out, you have government regulatory agencies and things like that. So that's the the simple level that people aren't thinking about. You may be many, you are many more yeses away from getting a deal done than you think if you only think you've got to persuade the person opposite you. Okay, that's piece one. Piece two is, and I think this is part of where you are going, is that deals don't exist at, a deal closes, that's the beginning of somebody's entrance. And, and this will still play out over five years or 10 years. Um, when you think about, here would be a really easy example. You've got two private companies doing a deal and neither one of them have audited statements and they don't need them. They're private companies and everything's good. So they the buyer doesn't ask the seller for audited statements. They know they can't get them. Two years later, they want to go public. The, the buyer does. Well, they need audited statements from the, prior transactions, if it was material, and uh-oh, we don't have them, and uh-oh, now we can't recreate them. Nobody thought about the two years from now problem. And sort of a, a different application of the two years from now problem is, no matter what somebody does, language in the contract is never clear. You know, and there's a cop that everybody uses. You know? Well, if it's a material issue, then it'll be decided this way, except nobody knows what the word material means, but it's the best human beings can do. Well, at some point, what the word material means actually really matters. So if you're thinking out over time, you can get the deal done by saying, okay, you'll indemnify me against material litigation. You can also say, hey, I know this is gonna be an issue. So let's talk right now today Material mean $10,000, $200,000, $6 million. What, What does the word mean? And you can't get obsessed by it or you'll never get a deal done, but you also shouldn't be unaware of tomorrow. And you should be very aware of both the visible stakeholders and the invisible stakeholders, particularly the invisible stakeholders you can't see who do not benefit from the transaction.
0: They yeah. would go you know, for the wrong reasons, right? Understanding those fears of influence uh, absolutely have a construct to the quantitative success that you'll have. And what I love is the creativity. You know, you are extremely pragmatic, but yet you are creative and obviously uh, and fueled by music and, and the philosophies of history and music. And yet you apply it as a creative framework. I see for buying, selling of course, investing as well. Uh, The Soul of Business, The Soul of the Deal is the name of the book. Uh, If you really want to understand the mindset, the heartset, and the handset, the construct, the framework of a deal, this is a must read. This is a world's thought leader's perspective of years of experience and a great reconciliation of pragmatic negotiation with a creative framework and creativity and fairness, which is, I think, throughout the book is, don't negotiate to the last penny. penny, always be fair, and don't do business with dicks. And uh, we certainly, <laughs> we, we certainly, th- th- those <laughs> are my takeaways. Those are my takeaways from Mark Morgenstern's unbelievable book. And I appreciate you, Mark, joining us. What great insight you've given us. I'm sure the statistical success of anyone that reads that book will exponentially grow and expand. The incredible Mark Morganstern here with me, Dave Meltzer.